Welcome to the Blue Stocking Baptist Podcast. My name is Hannah, and I'm here with my co-host, Esther. Last episode, we discussed who we should esteem, which is ultimately Christ. Yeah, in the last episode, we explored why self-esteem is not a biblical concept. And since self-esteem is not a biblical concept, we are going to talk about how we should view ourselves. This brings us to the age-old question, what is my identity? We are going to be talking about how our identity is firmly rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ and how being firmly grounded in that truth will bring us security and joy. Yeah, so we have many things that make up our identities. Hannah Anderson in the book Identity Theft calls these things categories. These would include mother, sister, grandma, daughter, wife, employee, um, things like that. We are all people with complex interests, ideas, hobbies, skills, and achievements. Some of us have bachelor's degrees, um, or we're incredible at the piano. Some of us are skilled in writing, and some have an eye for beauty and creating art. Some of us homeschool our kids or are faithful as homemakers. Others may have careers where they work heartily for the Lord, and these things are all good, and God has blessed each of us individually with different things and in different measures. But we are more than the things that we enjoy, the things that we do, and the people we are related to. These categories are limited, and if we build our foundation on them, we could have what the world would call an identity crisis if these things change or are lost or are destroyed. So on page 19 and 20 in the book, Identity Theft, Hannah Anderson has a really good quote where she says, in the midst of our confusion, people often turn to categories to give us a sense of who we are. We sort ourselves by age, gender, economic class, ethnicity, relationship status, and yes, even whether we prefer cats and dogs. Somehow, knowing I'm a pastor's wife, mother of three, an author who lives in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, gives me a sense of where I fit in the world. While these categories are helpful, they're limited. Our reliance on them can cause us even more confusion. Researchers call this tendency to find our identity in social categories, identity politics. This term is not limited to government or policy debates, but speaks more broadly to how we center our sense of self on one particular attribute of our identity and then define everything else by it. To be fair, categories themselves are not wrong. We use the categories of occupation, relationship, family, and geography to communicate how we spend our days and the work we have been called to on this earth. The problem comes when we ask them to hold all that we are. After all, if we try to stuff complicated, diverse, fully formed living beings into small, inanimate categories, we shouldn't be surprised when they feel tight and cramped and begin to suffocate us. Worse still, when we define ourselves with limited categories any shift in those categories can destabilize our sense of self. So to answer the question, what is our identity? We believe it's important that we begin at the beginning. What was humanity's first identity, so to speak? What did it originally mean to be a human? Humans are so generous of our own kind or unique. We are distinct from all other creations of God because we have the unique characteristic of being made in the image of God. This means we are made to resemble God, not in the sense that we physically resemble God, as a child might resemble their parents and their looks, but in the sense that humans are created as beings who mirror God mentally, morally, and socially. We can exercise rational thoughts and make decisions which reflects the intelligence of God. Um, an example of that might be when we draw something, we write a book, or we do math problems. Um, 
when we do those types of things, we're demonstrating the fact that we are made in the image of God uh, mentally. We're able to have a thought process. We were created morally upright, which reflected God's holiness and righteousness. We were also created to enjoy fellowship. That demonstrates the triune nature of God. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 records the creation of man. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the characteristic of being made in the image of God makes us different from animals and every other part of uh, God's creation. Being made in the image of God enabled us to have the ability to have charge and stewardship over God's creation as Adam was instructed to do. However, that image has been affected greatly by the fall of our first parents. When Adam and Eve sinned, they damaged the image of God within themselves and passed that tarnished likeness to all of their descendants. Romans 5.12 summarizes this, saying, Therefore, just as sin came to the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So we still bear the image of our creator, but that image is stained by sin. Sin has affected how we reflect God mentally, morally, and socially. And we can see the effects of sin physically. This affects how we live daily and how we steward God's creation. So we do have a few verses that we want to read that explain who we are apart from Christ. So John 15, 5 says, apart from me, Christ, you can do nothing. Romans 17, excuse me, Romans 7, 18 say, nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. Romans 5, 19 says by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Mark 7, 21 through 23 says for from within out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Romans 5, 19 says, By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Right. And uh, we found that a, a good summary of um, who, what our, our identity is apart from Christ um, is found in the, the Baptist Confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Confession, um, chapter 6, section 2 and 3 states, Our first parents, by this sin, from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we and them whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. They being the root and by God's appointment standing in the room and steed of all mankind the guilt of the sin was imputed and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation being now conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath the servants of sin the subjects of death and all other miseries spiritual temporal and eternal unless the lord jesus set them free so 
before we are set free by Christ and granted faith by the grace of God so that we can come to believe that believe in the gospel, we lived according to the flesh. The Bible teaches that we were slaves to sin, and that, that is our identity apart from Christ. Yeah, and Paul also reminded the Galatians of who they were often. Um, in Galatians 4, 8 through 9, he had said, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? He also um, said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 3, or excuse me, he also said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, 3, um, he said, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So both these verses um, show us that before we were in Christ, we were living to our flesh and to our passions and desires and lusts. Um, and we were not walking in accord with the spirit of God. Um, yeah. And so the truth is we're incapable of any Christ exalting good and in our flesh Nothing good dwells in us. We are sinners. But the good news is that when we are in Christ, we no longer identify with the flesh, but we are now um, slaves to God. When we say someone is in Christ, we are saying um, that before the age began, God gave them grace in Jesus Christ. God chose them before creation to be loved by him. And by his grace, he granted them faith to believe in his finished work on the cross. So then those of us who are believers are in Christ and we are redeemed and forgiven for all of our sins. We are justified by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And those who are in Christ are new creations and adopted daughters and sons of God through the substitutionary atonement. Yeah, so in order to be restored to the original image of God, one must be redeemed from their sin uh, by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're also transferred from being slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. We were once in bondage of sin, but now we are free in Christ. We are now friends and slaves of Jesus Christ. We seek to glorify him in all we do and seek to do the will of our master, obeying his commands and treasuring in our heart all that is contained in his word. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This passage shows us that we are no longer to identify with who we once were. We are all called to die to self and live to Christ. So when we come to faith, we no longer identify with that sin we once enjoyed. The party girl, the thief, the promiscuous, the self-righteous. The one who sought only to indulge in their own selfish desires, that person has been crucified with Christ. We are no longer marked by our past sins, past failures, or past behaviors. We are new creations with new hearts and new wills. John 1.12 also says, Yet to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. So in Christ, we're children of God and no longer children of wrath, as Ephesians 2.3 stated. This verse is extremely important in today's context because many believe that all people are children of God. Um, so 
like Esther was already talking about, every person is made in the image of God, but not all people are children of God. Only people who are believers have the right of children of God. Um, so I personally see this used a lot when people are defending the sin of homosexuality. Um, just the other day, I saw a Facebook post by a mother who was talking about her gay son. She was saying how she accepted her son's sin because all humans are children of God and created by him. She was letting experience dictate how, we sh how she would view her son's sin and wrongly applying texts that talk about who we are in Christ to her son, who was obviously not a Christian by his um, lack of faith and deeds of the flesh. Um, homosexuality can never be pleasing to God. It is never holy or good. Um, so for her to say that her son's sin was good and acceptable in the sight of God, um, by, by considering him a child of God, first being, he's not a child of God and second homosexuality sin. So it can never please mm -hmm. him. My pastor, Dave Barry actually said in his sermon this Sunday that, God will not bless what he's already condemned in his word. Um, and when we, when we claim that unbelievers are children of God and accepted by him without faith in Jesus Christ, we lie to them. Um, and we also, I mean, we can't live according to the flesh and think that we're united to Christ simply because we are all image bearers. Being an image bearer does not make a person a child of God since all who are children of God, have the spirit of God and are heirs to the kingdom of God. Um, a, good, a good example of this would be Romans 8, 12 through 17. Um, or not, not example, but an explanation from scripture. It says, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are to put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So this... Um, passage shows that those who are children of God are those who do not live according to the flesh and have the spirit of God. So the only people who have the spirit of God are those who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is final and secure. When the spirit is given, it is our guarantee that we will be given our eternal inheritance that is promised. And since God cannot change or lie, when we're given the spirit by faith, we will never lose the spirit. We are eternally in Christ and eternally children of God. Um, I, but I also don't want there to be any confusion. Um, I'm not conflating justification and sanctification. They are different. Sanctification always follows justification and is, and is a work of God in us. Um, sanctification is growing in holiness and likeness of Jesus. So we can't live by the flesh if we have the spirit of God, because the spirit of God is holy and is working in us as we put to death the deeds of the body. We are justified first made alive at Christ, new creations. We are no longer slaves of sin and obligated by the flesh. We are transferred into his kingdom of God and the spirit then works in our lives to sanctify us by his word. The fact that those who are not saved are not children of God can be clearly seen in 1 John 3.10. It says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
This is the test God's given us in scripture to rightly discern who is a child of God and who is not. Are they repenting or making excuses for their sins? I've come across countless people who have sex outside of marriage, enjoy porn, lie, gossip, and live life drunk all the while. They say things like, only God can judge me or we all sin. That's not repentance. That's not putting the deeds of the flesh to death. That's not fighting sin. That's excusing your sin. Proof of being a child of God is when we sin, instead of excusing it, we loathe it. We ask for forgiveness and help from the Lord to give us strength to resist temptation. We also want to share 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So in, in Christ, we know that we become slaves to righteousness and we're called out of darkness, out of sin, and into his marvelous light, that which exposes our sin and leads us to repentance and um, not... We no longer boast in our sin. Um, we're set apart to proclaim the good news and the finished work of Christ instead of basking in our sinfulness. Um, we just share that with others so that they can come out of the darkness and away from the bondage of sin. Um, another verse that uh, is applicable is Romans 8.1, where it says, There is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So in Christ, we're no longer under the condemnation that was aimed towards us while we were dead in our sins. John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.19-20 also says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Um, that price that God paid was the death of his son. Um, it was very costly. Jesus had to, sh to, to die and rise uh, from the dead for us. And we were ransomed. So uh, we're, since we're in Christ, we no longer live to our desires of the flesh. Romans 6, 17 through 18 says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having become slaves of righteousness. And verse 22 says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. So in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, like we've already stated. Um, and who is the righteousness? It is God. So to be a slave of God means that we're set free from sin and the fruit of our salvation leads to sanctification and its end eternity with Christ. Um, like verse 22 in Romans said. So on Sunday, December 2nd, my pastor, Steve Cole had preached a sermon on inadequate servants with an adequate, with an adequate Lord. Um, his sermon doesn't pertain to this specific topic as it had to do with serving in the church, but he did say something about who we are in Christ that I think is worth noting. He stated, slaves don't volunteer to serve. They don't tell their masters, I'll clean your house and fix dinner tomorrow, but I'm too tired and busy today. Slaves serve when they're tired, wiped out, busy, and lacking in resources. Slaves serve because they're under obligation to their master. So going back to Romans 6, 22, we see that we are slaves to God. 
This is a very important aspect of who we are in Christ because we're not our own. We were bought at a price and we belong to our master who is God. And since we belong to him, we can rest that we will not be abandoned by him. And it also shows us that as slaves, we're called to honor him with our lives and glorify him in all we do. Just as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says in question one and answer one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We live for him, not for ourselves. So again, our identity is not in ourselves, but God. And um, we want to share, an, is this the last verse we share? I think Yeah, so. it is. Cool. Yeah. All right. So we want to share one um, last verse, uh, kind of ties into everything that Hannah just said. Uh, it's from uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in Christ, we are made new so that we will do the good works that he prepared for us to do. Yeah. So kind of um, finishing on that point. So we've talked about how all people are image, the, we're all made in the image of God. Only believers are children of God. Um, we've been transferred from darkness into light. We're new creatures um, or excuse me, we're new creations. And um, ending with that, we have now been created to glorify God in good works. And we're now his, um, uh, we, like Ephesians 2.10 says, we are um, his workmanship created in Christ for good works. So um, a different aspect of what can happen when we're, we are not secure in our identity as Christians is idolatry. Um, so I have a really good example from when I was in high school. Uh, I had sought my identity in a boyfriend. Um, and I know that many different women struggle with this. Um, single women often long for a partner and feel insecure, unlovable, and like they'll never be married because they're putting too much weight into how men view them and not in how Christ views them. Um, and I definitely did this a lot. I mean, I was young, this was a long time ago, but I had a on and off boyfriend who, um, was, basically everything to me. I had put him in a place where God should have been. Anything, any show that he liked, I watched. Any place that he went, I wanted to go to. Anything that he enjoyed doing, I enjoyed doing. Um, he was a football player at the time. I, I honestly do not like football, but at the time, it was like football. Me I, yeah, I don't like football at all. But in high school, I was a <laughs> water girl for varsity and varsity <laughs> football. I'm not even joking. And I went to every single football <laughs> practice. Um, so it, it, if that just kind of shows you, I'm someone who doesn't like football yeah. and I was willing to go out of my way and love football for the attention of this boy. Um, and uh, so he had broken up with me twice. It just, looking back at it, it's just embarrassing to talk about. So <laughs> bear with me. <laughs> So when I, the first time that he had broken up with me, I can't really remember what he said. I mean, I don't dwell on it. I'm a married woman. And he's no longer my God in my life. But um, I remember he said something along the lines of, I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but that I wasn't motivated or driven. Um, it, so, and I remember I was heartbroken over that. And I, I just could not get over the fact that, there was something in me that was not desirable to him. Um, we, had, mm -hmm. we were broken up for quite some time and I was relentless to get him back. Relentless. I um, was on winter, for, winter formal court, which is kind of, if you're familiar with like prom, 
prom, we'll do a court. You have a queen and a king. We did that for every right. single dance. So I was on winter formal court and I was a oh. princess and I needed a boy to oh. walk me. And so I kind of used it as like a way to be like, hey, I need a boy to walk me in the assembly. Will you be that boy? And was able to kind of like draw him back into my life. Um, and then the second time, so we'd gotten back together. And then the second time he broke up with me, um, it was final. Like he was like, we're done. We're not getting back together. And I, it was like something in me snapped. And shortly after that, he started dating um, this girl who's actually getting married too soon. Um, and I, I lost my mind. And he had a friend who, um, sorry, I'm like jogging back memories. He had a friend who I, yeah. I cornered in the lo- in the hallways and I pushed him against the lockers. He was like, tell me everything that you know. And just being insane. And people were getting telling him like, Hannah is being nuts. And I was losing all my chances to ever get him back because here I am, I'm being literally crazy. Um, and I remember I was sitting in math class crying, like audibly crying. I remember exactly where I was sitting. I remember the lights were dark because they were doing, whoever the teacher was, I can't remember who the teacher was, but it was writing on the overhead projector, a math equation. And I'm just sitting there bawling my eyes out. And I had, I don't want to say this epiphany, but this realization of like, I had been making this boy, my God, I had put him on this pedestal and was all my worth, value, who I was, was all tied up in him. Uh-huh. And I, I don't believe this is what happened, but at the time, this is how I described it. I rededicated my life to the Lord in that moment. I don't believe that theological framework, but that's, those are the words that I put in to what was happening at the time. And so um, I tried to, from that point Repented. On, you repented. Yeah, I repented of elevating this boyfriend to the position of God. And I was like, I'm going to go to church. Mm-hmm. Um, I still didn't fully because I chose the youth group that was his youth group. And I also <laughs> was very intentional to become really good friends with his girlfriend, which is a confession I've never oh my really admitted. <laughs> and they're actually both like friends with Nick and I both now. So this is all like history. Yeah. This has happened a long time ago. Um, yeah. Killed that flood. I killed that flesh, but I started going to church, um, religiously. I was super involved with youth group and I took, I completely turned away from elevating boys to a place of God and was like, how can I make, um, center my life on Christ? And then shortly after that, um, probably like four months is when I started talking to my husband, um, and we were reading the Bible together and it was a totally different type of relationship than what I had previously so that's my example <laughs> yeah. Esther, do you have an example that you want to share <laughs> so um an identity that I used to like elevate to idolatry was um I struggled with and I'll struggle with the tendency to think way too highly of myself with like self-righteousness um like in high school which I shared this whenever I shared I how I came to know the Lord but um like in high school I was known as the good girl and I really took that identity and um that was my identity was the good girl and it wasn't because of you know 
Christ working with, you know, in me, or, you know, God using me, it was my own righteousness. And, um, I would, I would avoid bad things, not because I wanted to please God or I wanted to obey God. It was because, well, that's what the good girl does. And that's what the, I guess the identity that I took and ran with was, was that one. Um, so you were kind of making yourself God instead of right to right Christ. Where, whereas you you talked about like making your boyfriend that boyfriend into into your idol into your God, I struggle with that tendency of making myself like like making myself look good, um, which I think we all do to some degree yeah. before coming to Christ. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, yeah, so I mean, we can easily fall into idolatry when we elevate anything in our lives above Christ, whether it's a boyfriend, ourselves, um, a television show. I mean, I've always had a super obsessive personality and all throughout my childhood, there was always something that I latched onto. Um, a lot of the times it was TV shows or games. I know I'm, <laughs> but poor me. <laughs> I know. So sad. I'm not going to talk anymore because I don't want to hey, um, reveal hey, anything I, else. I, looking back, I feel like I, I turned like my, my love for like animals almost into an idolatry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Pet. I, I, and like th- saying that like out loud, it just feels crazy, but like you, I, there's this, um, this meme that's been going around, I guess you would call it a meme where it says basically challenges people to care about like foster kids as much as they do about foster animals. And that like kicked me in the guts. It was like, man, I volunteered at so many animal shelters and I mean, I still enjoy doing it, but it's like, do I care enough about fellow image bearers, you know, people made in God's image as much as I do or have for you know about animals but that's my crazy quirk there you go so we all have them look inwardly figure out what yours are um but i mean in and of themselves you could be an animal lover and that is not a bad thing it's are yeah, you yeah, yeah. your love for animals above christ because the things right. that we love enjoy um or are part of us whatever they they are categories of our identity but they're not the most important Mm -hmm. thing in which we should identify ourselves with um so this would be an example if so if i lost my husband to death um i'd no longer be a wife but a widow so currently i am nick's wife but if my nick if my husband nick dies um i was nick's wife so i i've you have a change in identity. So at that point, I'd now be free to marry again. And whoever I marry, I would now be, say, I'm Charlie, David, or Paul's wife. Not that I'm marrying three men, but (laughs) one of those men. I know what you meant. You get the point. (laughs) Um, But if my identity is wrapped up in my husband, and if he were to die prematurely, my whole life would be devastated. Um because I no longer have the person who I cling to 
for my worth and value. And I would have what the world would call an identity crisis. What's really happening is that I was elevating my husband above God and viewing my husband as my portion and not the Lord. And that doesn't mean that there's not a grieving process if we do lose family um, or possessions or whatever it may be, but we're ultimately Christians. And no matter what, that is our constant, never changing, um, always present reality that death cannot steal, Satan cannot snatch, um, that cannot get diseased or fail, and that cannot disappear. So the second, um, the second that we're born again, we um, are always children of God forever. So we always have the spirit of God. We will always be heirs of the kingdom. That will never change. That identity is forever. Um, so while mm-hmm. I am temporarily Nick's wife in this life, um, I'm eternally redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ for all eternity. And, and um, I'll never stop being a Christian. And it is my identity in which continues even after death. Where marriage, we're told in the scripture, does not continue after death. So there will come a point where my husband and I will no longer be husband and wife and we'll be brothers and sisters in the Lord. And both our identities are in Christ and not in each other. Um, So another example could be if I was a nurse, say I'm a nurse at a local hospital, um, I could become disabled and lose my job. I could get fired for a silly mistake. I could get laid off because uh, um, the hospital couldn't afford me. I could quit because I want to do something else. At one point, I am a nurse, but that aspect of me isn't eternally written in stone. I could at some point cease to be a nurse. So if I find all my security in being a nurse, I could slip into despair when I no longer am a nurse. So this is why it's critical to be grounded in Christ as your constant never changing identity, because you'll never be disappointed if you're in Christ. Yeah. (laughs) So to wrap up, uh, I just want to say that it's important to remember our identity in Christ. When we forget, we can easily become discouraged. It's important to, It's important to surround ourselves with believers so that we can build one another up and remind each other of the promises of God concerning who we are in Christ. This is why being in communion with a local church is crucial to the spiritual well-being of the body of Christ. In isolation, our thoughts are prone to forget the promises in scripture of our new identities found in Christ Jesus. So, This concludes our episode on identity. We've got some resources that we're going to link in the episode notes section. So be sure to check those out. Um, If you enjoy this episode, like it and leave us a comment. If you really, really, really like this episode, share it and rate our podcast so that more people can enjoy it. Our next episode is going to be on the topic of contentment. So be sure to come back and listen to that episode. So thank you for listening. We pray you are encouraged by the faithfulness of our God and that you understand your identity in Christ. And we want to end um, by encouraging you guys to remember Philippians 3.20, which states, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless. Mm-hmm.